podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. They might talk about human music, film, books, football and box sets, exercise and maybe even food. Trivia and sport, politics and health, sometimes well-being too. On the life with Brian. On the life with Brian. Welcome. Once again, you've stumbled upon Life with Brian, the Brian McClare podcast, where former Manchester United, Celtic and Scotland star Brian Chucky McClare chats football and a whole host of other things. Mark here as usual, pressing the record button. And with me as usual, I have Matthew. How are you doing, Matthew? Very well, thanks, Mark. Good to see you. Good. Uh, and Brian McClare's here too, thankfully. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a show. How are you doing, Brian? Wonderful. Good. Uh, and before I introduce our guest this week, um, did either of you remember that this is our first birthday episode? Oh, Absolutely, I did. Uh, oh, you lying twat. I, I haven't stopped celebrating since. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, once now we've got that very short self-congratulation out of the way, it's time to meet our guest. He's an award-winning radio and TV presenter whose credits are far, far too long and many to mention. He's also a columnist, lecturer, author, stand-up comedian, and a big Manchester United fan. Ladies and gents, it's Terry Christian. Terry, thanks for coming on. No, no, you're welcome. Thanks for asking me. You've been saving me for this one, haven't you? Oh, <laughs> that, that was the plan all along. One of the negative things, Terry, of being a football player in the uh, late 80s and early 90s was I couldn't go out on a Friday night and uh, I stumbled upon this programme, which I thought was incredible, not just because of the music, because of the chat, and more particular, your uh, irreverent and um, irreverent questioning and questions. Now, is there anything in particular that you remember about that wonderful time that you spent, I think it was five years doing the words? Yeah, I mean, I, no doubt you were editing a lot of people. However, I thought you were. Well, it, it was kind of to do because before that, you'd had all these kind of uh, what what they called youth programs. You know, things like Network Seven and stuff, which were all a little bit too trendy, weren't they? It was kind of you know for twenty-one-year-old you know guys in London and a bit about sophistication and stuff like that. And I, I kind of thought, well, youth programs really are about that horrible age where you you, you can't go out and you're too irritated to stay in. Uh, you know, when you're like 14 or 15 and, you know, you might get one night out at a youth club, but the rest of the time you're fed up, fed up. So our vision was to bring a night out into your living room, really. That was the cage group we were in at, really. You know, kids who wanted to out but were too young to go out. And um, and the weird thing was, because you know, this, this show's sued down market, you know, by some hush-puppied bloke in his early 20s. And you go, no, mate, it's not aimed at you. You can like it if you want, but it's not meant to be uber-hip and trendy. It's supposed to say, look, this is what's available. Have a laugh with it, but treat it all the same, really. You know, I mean, it was like with the music thing. We'd always have one black band on, one kind of, you know, rock guitar-type band, and one pop band on. And and that was you know that that was kind of how how we planned it you know same same with the guests we'd always have uh, quite a few gay guests on just to make just to show the normality of life in, in a way you know that we're all 
all the interesting people are all sort of outliers and misfits, but that's what society's made up of. It's made up of individuals. There is no mass audience, really. And funnily enough, by doing that, by treating your audience, you know, as individuals, you actually got a bigger audience. Um, but you were you were more of a before that you were in radio, weren't you in Derby? And you were you were what you could in Manchester. Call in Manchester, Manchester yeah. Then, so I was in Derby, Derby for eight years, and da- then then on radio in Manchester for two years after that. Um, you know, but I, I was kind of I'd won two National Sony Awards for the best specialist music show, but those shows themselves were kind of quite irreverent and built in a certain way, you know, in a certain style, you know, to kind of make try. And, I used to want people to keep listening through to my shows all the way through at the end, which is a bit arrogant for radio, you know, because most people dip in for twenty minutes. But so, how did that? What was the crossover like going from sort of more maybe more serious broadcasting to to what you went on to do in the word? I mean, it wasn't as much serious broadcasting. It was just um, when you did the word, you were with a lot of people who were less experienced than I was. Um, you know, so even our bosses hadn't been. And, and, and the, the get out that they would use on me was, no, Terry, but, you know, TV is different to radio. And I thought, well, yes, it is. But what is entertaining and what works works in the same way on both. You've got to give people that feeling that it all, it might all fall apart at any minute so that they carry on listening. You know, you, you knew how to kind of, I don't know, get keep an audience on tenterhooks. I mean, I, it, it's something that you can learn now. Um, I mean, when I was on BBC Radio Manchester, I remember, you know, Bernard Manning died and I had, uh, you know, this sort of uh, the newsreader, Michelle Adams, opposite me. And I said, oh, you know, it's terrible, really. I said, can I tell you my favourite Bernard Manning joke? And she was like, you could see her flapping, going, no, uh, um, no, it's okay, I don't need to. But I knew that anybody driving into work that morning, listening, would be just waiting <laughs> for this one, you know what I mean? And I was going, no, no, I insist, let me tell you. You know, and it was, you know, it was, it was one of those. That it, so we do that with the word a lot. And it would be, you know, what's he going to ask next? What I mean, a lot of the time, the, the interviewees weren't that great. The interviews weren't that great. I mean, what I'd do is I'd just throw that purposely. I mean, like a kid, really, because I was out, I was out of my comfort zone. So I remember interviewing Darcy Bustle, the ballet dancer. And I just thought, I'll ask her how much a ballet lessons cost. Because, you know, it's all very well being, what, what's the word for it? Aspirational. But let's be realistic. You know, if you're some kid sitting in your council house in Moss Side, your mum and dad can't afford ballet lessons. So even if you might be a better dancer than Darcy Bustle, you're not you're not gonna you're not gonna dance out the ballet. You know, it's not it's not a comic strip out of your sister's bunty comic. You know, this is real life. And uh, so I would tend to do that. And in, in that way I was a bit subversive, I suppose. Well, it was, that's what I loved about it, Terry, because um, it just really resonated with me because I, I, I'm a professional football player, but I'm in a world that I, I wasn't totally comfortable with in that uh, everybody seems to have an opposite point of view from me on basically everything. And I used to ask them questions a bit like you would ask them, except I'd be asking them and chatting over dinner only for two reasons. One, to get a rise out of them. Another thing was that I always wanted to be entertained and I still want to be entertained every day. My whole idea is that can I find a laugh from somewhere every day and um, where does that laugh come from? And I, I, a lot of the time it was from my colleagues because of me being, uh, whatever, just taking the piss, I suppose, or banter, whatever else is. But listening to and watching your stuff, for me, was like you're taking it to kind of worldwide. Uh, you know, it was UK-wide, but then because a lot of the guests were more pretty famous out throughout the world, weren't they, in the sense that you were asking them questions that I would have loved to have been asking them that were like, 
from left field or whatever else that was rather probably I don't know what you reset I mean you really don't you did research but you decided you were just going to go fuck it I'm not, I'm not going to be bored with this I might never see this person again this doesn't really matter well, well I mean I'd be polite to question. I'd be polite oh, no I wasn't saying you I didn't say you were rude no I'm not saying you were rude but you're asking questions you know like you watch Having grown up all the way through the, just like you, through the through the seventies and all those chat shows, where there's there's this certain um, things that they're out of control uh, with different parts of it. A lot of it's like kind of pretty boring, isn't it? Because you go in, the guests there, and you're asking about what a film or whatever they're doing, and they give you a particular answer. Yours were just like, uh, what, is this guy asking me this question? Or why Why are they answer this? Or they're not answer it. How the fuck do I get out of here right away at this moment in time? And you're <laughs> the whole time are uh, continuing. You're saying happy, go lucky, um, chat and character about it. Well, you thought, well, you're going to answer the question, you're not. And I used to say to them, like, well, I can't remember who it would be. Who would that be in 1990? Maybe somebody like um, Rev Anderson, and he would go and he was quite interested because he liked music, you know, like the Rolling Stones in particular, Stevie Winwood and all that kind of thing. So he'd be interested to watch it because of the music. But all the rest of stuff, he'd go, what the, what's this shit you're watching? You know? <laughs> He's probably right, though, with a lot no, of it. No, it wasn't, though. It wasn't, it was because it was five years of popular television. Okay, at that time of night, but what's the treat for me? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, we, we the only footballer we ever had on was Ian Wright, and I and I, I thought it was fantastic that we actually had, you know, because none of them were into football. So it's weird now that we've gone the Premier League. All those public school boys that I work with, they were into football, you know. So some of the cameramen were, but they were all Crystal Palace fans. They were just excited because they bought shares in Man United. And they turned around to me and said, oh, we're, doing, uh, we're doing well at the moment. I said, oh, no, you're, you're doing well at the moment, aren't you? I said, well, what do you mean? We drew one all. He said, now the shares. I said, well, I'm going to shares. I wish I had bought some shares now, you know. In <laughs> retrospect, we'd all be millionaires. And I'd go, what are you about? You're a Crystal Palace fan. No, nah, but the shares. They, they all bought shares in United, all the, all the camera crew on the word. <laughs> I've heard you say before, Terry, that you um, you struggle somewhat maybe with your creative uh, control with that show because you you had your ideas, but the people you work with maybe didn't share those same. Well, well it was very wearing because I'd, I'd come out of eight years. No, well, yeah, eight years working on radio. You know, six years at Derby, two years in Manchester, where I'd had a hundred percent control over over my content, and and I was always interested in doing stuff that was different. You know, even on the. You know, I interviewed Keith, Sir Keith Joseph on one of my early shows. You know, people like Robin Day was on my first show. So I would interview anybody who was a big name about politics, all sorts of interesting stuff, music, authors, all of that. So when I came to the word, you know, I mean, I mean my show on Radio Derby had been described as like a punk Radio 4. So... And then when I was on Key 103, you know, I, you know I'd, I'd interview everybody who was around, do sessions with James, the Pixies, you know, all sorts of people, you know, the Lars. I mean, that's you can still get that on the B side of a CD. I was like the extra tracks on a CD, the session that the Lars did live on my show. You know, it wasn't even recorded. It was live with all the banter in between. And some, I think somebody's put it on YouTube as well. So we do all of that stuff. And then suddenly I'm doing this national television show with loads of these resources and about 30, you know, 30 odd people working on it. And you're going, well, why is it I would have better, better guests who are better talkers and have more to say on a Tuesday night on Key 103 between six and nine o'clock than you're managing after a four week's work on a Friday. 
because they, they over they overthought everything and it, it was about I don't know, you know, you'd be fighting these constant battles and you say, look, it's up to me to make it interesting, but it's up to you to get get me people who tick three boxes. Are they happening now? Have they got something to say? You know, and are they well known? Now, two out of that three will do. But do you know which one is the most important? Have they got something to say? And uh, so, so that, but, they, but they, they just didn't understand those basics. So I remember we had Steve Coogan on, and I thought, great, you know, somebody, somebody on his, you know, he's going to be a high flyer, he's going to be huge. They dressed him up as Father Christmas and made him put on funny voices as he gave crap presents out. You know, a waste of a guest. That's Meanwhile, you know, he, do that, though. Hey? he must have been happy to accept that. Well, I mean, he was and he wasn't. The, the thing is, I knew him, and I just thought, well, I could have got a bit more out of him. Although, having said that, he got to a stage later on where he became very, uh, you know, Mr. Drama, and he hated doing the funny voices. Um, but I remember when he was on the Mrs. Merton show and, uh, you know, I knew Caroline really well and she was evil. And she was like, so, Steve, can you do Frank Spencer for us? <laughs> he but he didn't take her on in a battle of wits because she would just wipe the floor with him because she was too sharp. She'd have wiped the floor with anyone. She was scary, Caroline, four foot ten, but really sharp, sharp as a razor. Oh, you had a question about the word, I've got several questions about the word. Um, Brian, uh, Terry mentioned about Ian Wright being the only footballer guest that he's ever had, that they ever had on the word. Um, how do you think Sir Alex Ferguson would have felt in that period in the early 90s if um, Lee Sharp and Ryan Giggs had rocked up there on a Friday night to have a pint with the hopefuls or they were in the mosh pit with the Rage Against the Machine? Was it, is it was the word live, Terry? Yeah, it was. I, I think Ian Wright, was, Ian Wright was injured at the time. Uh, so he, he came on. to be injured, injured or suspended. So uh, for anybody to be on that, um, they would have to have, have to be in those no situations. Right. Do you want to hear a great... It wouldn't, surprise, it wouldn't have surprised me if they'd have popped up on them. Yeah, well, well yeah. We, Lee Sharp did... Uh, did a, So we wanted to get Lee Sharp on, but, you know, obviously when he was injured, but Fergie wouldn't let him come on. But interestingly, uh, Lee Sharp was interviewed over in Spain for a spin-off show called uh, Surf Potatoes on a Sunday by Danny Bear. And uh, so she spent all day with Lee Sharp, and Lee Sharp spent all day with her. And the, the story I heard off the crew were out there was like, Lee Sharp was like, yeah, he was in there and Danny liked him. And then he, he disappeared off basically to get, us, get his coat. And Ryan Giggs walked in and just pulled her and they, they went off together. And Lee Sharp came back with his coat and went, where's Danny Bear? And the rest is history. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so really, Lee Sharp put all the work in, doing the interview with her on the golf club, having drinks, making a laugh all day. And then Giggs, he just swammed in and just uh, pulled her off. So Sharp, who was a fluffer. <laughs> that's, that's certainly the, that's the story that I heard of the people out there in Spain. It was in Spain, where so I mean, why would they both be on holiday in the same place? Uh, well, they used to hang about a little bit together because yeah. they were both around about the same age, both single, both professional football players. You know, I don't. I think they got on quite well as yeah. individuals. You know, what I mean, exactly. Uh, I think what gig, most by the sounds of it, Giggsy was uh, quicker getting into the box. Well, Giggsy <laughs> was like, forget that. That's uh, uh, probably his. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's really, don't his downfall. You really is, don't go and get your don't go for your coat. Isn't it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> just wait for your opportunity yeah, well. get in there and just glide away. Why you got a coat in Spain? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that wouldn't go down well, though, between mates in my era. 
that's all I'm saying, you know. Not, you know, not when one makes Paul the way. Football is a different, they're a different breed. They're a harder breed like that, aren't they? Somebody else cutting your grass? No, you wouldn't be. Was <laughs> that yeah, Giggsy and Sharpie's usual, you know, was one 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 wingman, you know, quite literally. But yeah. Giggsy often feed off the scraps of Sharpie. It sounds really. as if it was, isn't that? It sounds as if it was like uh, dog eat dog, that, doesn't it? You know, it's like, well... <laughs> All I used to say to Danny used to drive him out. He'd say, Does he dribble before he shoots? Terry, do you think there's a place or even an appetite for a show like The Word these days? I've got no idea. You know, I mean, with my lads, I always found it interesting. I used to think, Where are they even hearing music? Because this was before they had mobile phones and they. They wouldn't watch anything on the TV. I mean, they did when they were really young. You know, they'd watch like Top of the Pops and stuff. But then they'd come back and they'd know, they'd know everything. They know all these songs that I wouldn't know. Uh, I remember the, the oldest one is now 23. When he was four, he used to love watching Top of the Pops and like the cheeky girls and girls aloud and all that kind of stuff. And then one day we were watching it and he went, Dad, all this music on Top of the Pops is, uh, is all right, isn't it? Uh, I said, I said, yeah, I suppose so. Dad didn't want to put him off anything, you know, make him too cynical. And he said, but really, all of it's rubbish compared to Eminem. And he was right. You know, without me, there'd be no controversy. And he, he learned every word of it. And I remember saying to him, I said, well, what's techno? He went, I don't know. I said, who's Moby? I don't know. But, you know, he was saying, nobody listens to techno no more and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, so Eminem was like the first thing. So they, they tended, he certainly tended to have just naturally good taste, in that kind of weird way, you know, because you watch that and you think, actually, yeah, he's right. This guy is going to be, is important and has got that vibe, you know, like for whatever weird reason, when I was three or four, I just got mad into the Beatles. I just thought they were fantastic, you know, amazing. Um, and it, so I think you're, you're either tuned in or you want that or you don't. Um, you know, it's so to some people it's important. It's a bit like books are important, you know, to some people, but it's like, you know, but, people who don't like music should still be allowed to buy records. And that's why you've got some of the stuff that's around and people who, who don't like literature should, should still be allowed to buy books. And that's why you have, you know, people like Katie Price and what have you. And, and a lot of football autobiographies, you know, went to school, played football, signed for X, Y, and Z. You've read them all. <laughs> I've read hmm. them all. <laughs> you mentioned there on a serious note, I mean, there really is a, a lack of outlets now for young artists and bounce to get themselves heard and featured on TV. So, I mean, where, the, the, where the, well, the reality is it's changed. I mean, you know, music isn't valuable in the way that it used to be. You know, I mean, to, to, to put that in context, back in for the 76, 77 season, no, almost 77, no, 76, 77 season when United won the FA Cup, I bought a league match ticket book for £7 as a junior, and that got me into 21 home games for Man United. Now, in that September, a double album with a seven-inch single included in it by Stevie Wonder called Songs in the Key of Life came out, and that cost £6.20. That cost 80 pence less than watching 21 Man United games all season. So you can see where, you know, how music's become less and less valuable, and something like football has gone through the roof, really, because no, nobody grows up in Old Trafford, or certainly in my day could have afforded the prices now. I had mates to stop going when it, when it went up to a fiver. You know, I mean, it's pocket money to go. You know, it's got a working class area now. I mean, obviously now it's all, a lot of places are kind of yuppifying the people who live there are different. Um, but yeah, you know, football's become a luxury. It's become something that a lot of people go to like, 
once every six weeks or once every two months, whereas we went every week with our mates. You know, we, we went not even expecting to win the league. You went, well, let's hope we beat West Ham today, you know, with, with that kind of mentality for the entertainment on a Saturday. That's why we couldn't abide, you know, um, people like Dave Sexton when he came in, you know, although he was a great coach and we saw some good matches, it was almost by accident, you know, that a football game would would uh, break out and that's normally because we've got a goal or two goals behind. Um you know, and then obviously when when Big Ron came, because of the Sexton thing, if there were more than three passes between a back four, the whole crowd would start booing. Isn't that weird? They wouldn't boo a player playing rubbish back in those days, but they would boo if that ball didn't go up the pitch. You know, <laughs> I knew we we wouldn't be able to get you on without talking about football. But um, when you said there, you grew up in the shadows of Old Trafford. Um, I mean, tell us what it was like growing up supporting United then. What was it, late seven, uh, late 60s, early 70s? Yeah, yeah. Well, when I first went was the, the late 60s. So, my, you know, my, my first game was United-Everton, the first home game in the first 69-70 season. And we got we got mullered. I mean, it was 2-0, but, you know, that flattered United. And then the next game, we lost 4-1 to Southampton. Ron Davies scored all four goals and everyone looked like an action replay of the other. In fact, I talked to George Best about that, you know, sitting down having a chat with him. And uh, he remembered that game, like, really clearly. I mean, a lot of footballers can't remember games, but he could remember. He said, he said yes, every ball came from Sydenham on the left. John Sydenham, who's their winger. And it was like, yeah, weird. Um, yeah, and I think it was about the fourth game in that I actually saw United uh, win. Whereas when I went to City... And it's the only game my dad ever took me to. And he took me and my younger brother, Kevin. And that was the quarterfinal of the League Cup. So uh, City against Queen's Park Rangers, who were then in Division 2. And that was at Main Road. So that was like November of uh, 69. Freezing, freezing night. And um, City won 3-0. And that, that was amazing. I mean, I, I know they're only in Division 2, but they had Rodney Marsh. And they actually wore City's away kit at the time, you know, black and red stripes, uh, you know, the the uh, Queen's Park Rangers players, which was kind of confusing for me and our Kev at the time. But but yeah, I mean, it, it was just, we would go to City one week and United the next. For years we did that because it was just pocket money. Yeah. Uh, but, but it felt like it belonged to you. It was part of you, you know, it, whereas now, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe people, obviously there was no social media back then. I mean, people would moan about players, but you wouldn't hear the moaning, as a big groan from the crowd as such, you know, in the way that you do now. Um, I think, I think maybe fans are less patient because it costs so much to go. You know what I mean? You know, if you've only paid like 30 P to get in, you're not going to, you're not going to go on about it too much, but now that, you know, they're paying like, you know, 40 quid a ticket, 50 quid a ticket, 60 quid and all the rest of it. It's like, come on, you know, What's your, take, what's your take on modern football now? I mean, you obviously everyone knows you for being a big passionate United fan, but does it mean as much to you these days? Do you still go? You- I, I, I mean, I, I do still go, but not as much as I did. I mean, now I dip in and out. I do like every six weeks or so. I've got mates who might offer me a free, you know, a freebie or one of my lads a freebie. You know, I mean, I, I do always feel like I was a bad dad that I never got a season ticket to take my lads. But a lot of that was because I was working Saturday and Sunday. Uh, so I would have liked to have taken them all, you know, growing up, you know, where, they, where you know, they, they'd see maybe seven or eight games a season, you know, that's it each, you know, and then they'd have to have turns each, you know what I mean? The, the occasion they had take them both together um, or if I could like sort, sort freebies out. I remember sitting at a function, actually, I, I was like next to Angus Deaton, who was next to David Gill. And I said to Angus Deaton, I said, how do you, 
bag all these free tickets for United, you know, every game. And yet I grew up down the road. I've always been a mega United fan. You know what he said to me? I ask. <laughs> Couldn't possibly do that. It's sticking me craw. <laughs> you know, I should be invited. I should get... Ferguson, Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson should have rung me up and personally invited me to every game. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I was a little bit like that with United because so when, even when Danny, Danny Bear was going out with Ryan Giggs, I'd go to places and I'd bump into certain players, but I never wanted to speak to them or get to know them. I think uh, the only, the, the, the weirdest one was I bumped into Wes Brown when he was only 16. And uh, he, all his mates were from like round Longside and a mate of mine, who was a, a big music producer in Manchester, Johnny J. He'd been running like a DJ and mixing course at Moonraker Studio in Longside. So he knew these lads. So he stopped. We were in town just going out. He stopped chatting to him. And one of these lads, these all black lads, and they, they like pointed to this lad. He, he was like sort of odd looking, you know, so, so, so young and kind of frail in a way looking and said, oh, he plays for Man United. So I thought, oh, wow. Right, you, you know, he's 16. And I went, all oh, right, great. I said, what position? He said, centre half. And I said, all oh, right, in the youth team. He said, no, the reserves. And this was when we had like David May and Henning Berg and Yap Stam and uh, Ronnie Johnson. So you thought, blimey, he must be good. You know, he doesn't, you know, he, he, did, he was just so slight looking. And, and he was a good player, wasn't he? Where? So later on down the line, whenever I go out, I'd always bump into Wes Brown. And he used to have to tell me to go away. I don't want to know you. Because he was playing for United. You know, he didn't understand it, but I said, listen, you know, when you when your career's finished, I'll have a word, but I don't want to know you because what if I meet you and find out that I don't like you? <laughs> uh, that, that maybe someone should have told me that about Brian, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, that's really, I wanted something to be sacred to me. I mean, with music, you know, you can meet someone whose music you like and they can be, you know, see, seem a bit of a, an idiot and what have you, a bit of a knob. Um but then you have to think, well, you've got to love the art, not the artist, you know, because the important thing they do is, and, and I suppose the same way with football, but in some ways I, I just couldn't bear it if I didn't like it, you know, if I, if I, if I, if I found out that I didn't like a certain United player. Um, I mean, I, I was actually drunk and I accidentally met them all in the Metropole Hotel in London after they'd lost to Everton 1-0, you know, the dogs of war and such lovely guys, you know what I mean? So I was chatting to them all, I was, you know, chatting to like Mark Hughes, you know, Palister, Bruce, all of that lot, you know what I mean? But it was it was weird. It was only because I was drunk and they, they were being dead chatty to me, so that was all right. You know, the ones that weren't chatty to me, like Roy Keane, <laughs> you know, I didn't speak to him. But, um, you, know, but, you know, that was fine. That Brian was fine. would have been there. You played that game, didn't you, Brian? 95 season? That was when Duncan Ferguson scored, I think. The Dogs no, of War. Yeah. Paul Rideout. No, Paul Rideout. Rideout. Oh, the, oh, the Cup final. Sorry, I thought you meant the league game. Oh, yeah, the Cup, Cup final. final. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, hanging out with... I mean, the first the first United footballer I ever met was Paddy Crerand because a mate of mine, Mike King, uh, he was like my best mate as a kid and he lived in the houses that were demolished on Cholton Road, you know, in the Brooks Bar area where we grew up opposite the old Imperial Cinema, which is now the Imperial Builders. Uh, only about 100 yards from Moss Lane West, you know, in Moss Side. And um, his dad was, it was an Irish builder and suddenly made money and bought a semi-detached house on Earlington Avenue in the Furswood area of Old Trafford, you know, the posh bit, just off Rybank Road. And I remember going round, round to his house and, he, and next door but one lived Paddy Crerand. And so Mike used to play with Paddy's lad, Patrick, Patrick Jr., who was like a year or two younger than us. And uh, even though he, he was born and bred in Manchester, he was only about six at the time. He used to say, he used to speak with a Scottish accent 
So we used to make him say hat trick because when he said it, it sounded like he was saying heart attack. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, what did, and did you score? What did you three score goals? What's that? Three, did you score three goals? What's that? And you score a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like that to us. <laughs> we went in Patty Crerin's house and I saw a, a colour TV in there. And that would have been, you know, summer of 69. A colour tally. I didn't even know they existed. 26-inch colour tallies. Footballers, £100 a week. That's what, that's what we heard. They get £100 a week. Has he still oh, got it, Brian? <laughs> did, did you measure the television? No, it was just huge. You could, the biggest black and white one you could get was 24 inches. <laughs> and this was 26 inches. And it was like weird. It was just weird to see it, you know. So we'd never seen that. That was wealth. You know what I mean? A semi-detached house with a garage and a front and back garden. So you talk about all that then. Is there someone you were very disappointed that you met that you thought, oh, it's almost as if you'll, you'll take all your strips off the wall and your pictures or or your films or your records and... Just not, 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 for, not, not, um, I'm trying to think, not... I mean, I'm talking about all across all the arts and somebody you met, you thought, what a dick, I can't... Who, who I thought was all right? Um, I don't know, I think Eddie Murphy, really. Because um, the, the weird thing about Eddie Murphy was we were interviewing him about, he'd done an album of music. Christ almighty. You know, it's, it would have been like Van Morrison doing a stand-up album. So and it was awful. And he'd recorded and mixed it himself and he sang as well. He can't sing. You know, you, know, you, you look at Dream Girls and all that. That's just about it. And um, so he did it. But he obviously thought he must have been. Maybe it's like, he must it a comedy album. He must have done it on Class A's. It was released on the Motown label. So they paid for us to fly out there to interview him. And they gave us like 45 minutes, an hour with him. So we were interviewing him in the Mondrian Hotel. And he'd insisted, he'd written this massive list of demands so that the hotel, we, we had to light these certain types of candles, scented candles, uncut potpourri had to be on every flat surface. And then muslin, not net curtains, muslin draped over, you know, like the, the, the window bit in the balcony in this suite and all this kind of stuff. So he did all that. And then he turns up, and it was a boiling hot day in, in Los Angeles, and he turns up with all these guys, like a big gang, all in big puffer jackets. He must have been sweating, like sweating cobs underneath. We all came in like that. So I stood up and went, oh, hi, Eddie. Uh, I'm Terry from Channel 4. I'm going to be doing the interview. Held me hand out like that, and he just went... That she turned his back on me. I thought, you know, you know, one of them weird ones you sit down quick for oh, okay. one of them is it. So we sat down 45 minutes of the interview, and he was my best mate for 45 minutes and making jokes and taking a Mickey out of my accent and blah blah blah. And you know, really re- reacting and just being a great, a great interview guest. 45 minutes, I'm asking him questions, you know, and I'm not being funny with him and being nice, blah blah blah. End the end of it, I go. Oh, listen, thanks a lot for that, Eddie. Got all his, he's just turned his, turned his back on me. <laughs> all right. Thanks, mate. I mean, I don't hold it against it. I mean, I suppose really it's one way you set your boundaries so that no one's going to mess you about. You know what I mean? So if you go, if you're fussy about having uncut pulpry on every flat surface, you know what I mean? Because people will take the piss, you know what I mean? And people will maybe, you know, push things a bit far, take advantage. Um, you know, maybe I should. Maybe I should have done that sometimes when I was being interviewed by people like the Daily Mail. 
put uncut popery on, the, on there. So, what I used to do instead was I used to, especially when it'd be like the odd female journalist and they'd come up to interview me in Manchester and I had to do these interviews. I'd make them meet me in the Wally pub or the spinners in Hume, you know, where they'd be looking through all the lasered hatred and the, the strange ways tattoos or they'd be getting offered drugs, you know, in five minutes yeah. of getting in there. Why did you agree to do interviews for the Daily Mail? Well, because I had to, I had to do, I was contractually obliged to do about 12 or 15 interviews before every series. Um, and it was awful because they were always just going to slag me off. Thick, inarticulate, cerebrally challenged, a moron, the worst presenter on TV ever, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I mean, it's just relentless, five years worth of it. And then obviously, you know, for, for the Daily Mail, the Express and the Sun, they all knew that I hated Thatcher because one of the first uh, shows on the word went, Margaret Thatcher, and I went, <laughs> messing about, blah, blah, blah. And then obviously I was very anti-royal family. Um, one time we had, there was a new video come out, the new right on Noddy. And I, and I said, oh, it's a politically uh, correct Noddy. I said, there's no gollywogs in it anymore. And he doesn't, and he, and he, and, uh, he doesn't speak with, he doesn't sleep with big ears either. He must have got the idea off Lady Diana. You know, so little things like that gave gave off a flavour of what my politics were in some respects, and um, so they'd always have a have a dig, you know. But I I just came to expect it, you know. I mean, I I, did, I didn't really care towards the end, but I should have I should have sued a few people actually, you know, genuinely sued them, you know, just because what what they were putting in was was totally defamatory and actually cost me a lot of work. I think I think you like a good row or debate, Terry. Um, have, has, has that ever got you into any bother with other fans at a football match? No, not really. Um, I've always been pointlessly belligerent. Um, no, I just, weirdly enough, I've never been involved in any of that, you know, at football matches. Although whenever I've been near an away end, um, like I, I took my lads up to Sunderland and it ended up being a one-all draw. You know, that, that was their big, their big treat mm-hmm. for an August bank holiday. Go up to Sunderland. Ooh, to Sunderland. Louis Van Gaal's, for Louis van Gaal's first away game. What a game that was. I think Matter scored for us and I don't know whether it was Rodwell or someone, you know. But so they were pleased with the one all draw at Sunderland. Nice people, but yeah. And it's even got a beach, I had no idea. Nice sunny bank holiday Monday. Mm-hmm. My, my lads loved it. What a treat for them. Do you think people take it with a pinch of salt? Because I mean, I've heard you over the years winding fans up on the radio and what have you, but do you find most genuine fans treat you with a decent amount of respect. Well, I mean, you know what you do. I mean, look, my brief when I worked on TalkSport was to just annoy everyone with being a United fan. So you'd do that every week and you'd run out of ideas, you know. So you'd, you'd start your niggle early doors. You'd go, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, you'd run, run through the results. You'd go, oh, Portsmouth uh, lost, lost to their big rivals today. Gillingham, you know, that kind of thing. You know, like, <laughs> then the one that I used to enjoy the, enjoy the most is if Chelsea had a bad, bad result, I'd always go, they'll be choking on their ciabattas and spitting out their skinny latte, lattes on these Fulham Road tonight and already be on the phone. Well, you always try my cat. We're, you know, we're middle class. It's you lot or your prawn sandwiches, mate, and all that kind of stuff. You know, so you'd know you'd hang, hang, that, hang that niggle in there. But it got, um, I mean, the best one I did, because he used to do it with Mickey Quinn, who was a yeah, scout. Yeah, yeah. So, they always, so they always wanted that mank scouse thing. And um, it was it was that period when you know it, it, like low, they all started wearing snoots and tights and everything like that and gloves. So I said to him, I said, "Look, Mickey, I said, look at your team, Liverpool. Now you've got some good players there. Same with Arsenal, play great football." I said, "But 
you're going out in tights, snoods, gloves, hats. You know what I mean? I said, Alice Ferguson won't have that. I said, look at United. They go out, same weather, short sleeves. And I, I was lining him up for it, short sleeves. And he went, he went, yeah, well, what about Wayne Rooney? He wears gloves. I said, Scouser, fingerprints. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't get away with it now would you well you wouldn't no, get like, away with a lot of what you did then but i mean i, I think it was appreciated i remember seeing you do a stand-up here in liverpool years ago in a bar called motel oh that was um, one of my first ones and yeah there's only about 40 people turned up uh, well i was one of them and you know well, paul, Mike, paul Mike mccartney's McCart- brother was there as well yeah, McCartney yeah. With his missus, that was her birthday treat to go and yeah. see me yeah i was there <laughs> yeah i bought you a whiskey that night as well but no i think people i mean i remember people go oh terry christian he's going to get slaughtered but i mean i think everyone's pretty fair with that kind of stuff i think it's all taken tongue-in-cheek i hope it is anyway uh, um, well, i mean i mean also the, the thing is you know if, if you're from old traffic you're from they don't expect you to support liverpool do you, you know when, when you're having an argument with a liverpool fan they don't expect to say all my life i've been a fool you're right i'm gonna change allegiance tomorrow let me do it now <laughs> you know and, and also you're from a similar background to a lot of them i mean like peter hooten introduced me on that night but you know we're both kind of irish descent you know working class Catholic kids in that way, you know, recovering Catholics, I should say. But, you know, so that, that was like, uh, yeah, I mean, I would, I would, I wanted to do another one in Liverpool. What happened was it wasn't that well publicized. And then somebody had died. who was quite a big, big name in Liverpool. So a lot of people who were going to come and see me had gone to his funeral, which was that night, you know, his funeral do. Yeah, we'll do it again. I'll come and see him. Brian, Brian's in Liverpool's more yeah, than Well, I'm going to be I'm going to do the days, uh, Word one. When I get, I'm doing the first show of that, so I'm doing one called My Word, and I'll bring the recovering Catholic one back later. Yeah. I've got more. I've got more dark perspective on it now. You know, it boiled down to. <laughs> well, it, well, it was it was it was called Naked Confessions of a Recovering Catholic, but it kind of boiled down to I'm a bit of a twat, but it's God's fault. Yeah, that's that's what everybody told you when you were in football, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have, to accept, you have to accept responsibility for some things, you know, and uh, eventually you do, yeah. They can't all have been wrong, not from the age of like five, can they? So, when you, so just a little daft little thing is, were you, when you were uh, growing up and uh, over the period of time, were you pleased when they changed the idea of sins from uh, mortal sins and uh, venial sins? So my whole kind of thing was like big confusion over am I going to the burning fire because I'm not quite sure. Mm, well, you see, I, I telling can... lies means I'm going to the burning fire in comparison to well, um, killing somebody, you know. So do you know when I first smelt the snake oil, smelt the the bull and the snake oil it was just after maybe. So we used to make our first confession when we were six. Yeah. And I remember we had to go in for right. practice. Same time for me. Yeah. yeah, we had to go in for practice. And Sister Bernadette, I used to whistle when I was a, a bit nervous, whistle under my breath. And Sister Bernadette, horrible. Right? Nuns, like extinction reminders, aren't they? And uh, they never see you without telling you you're going to be dead one day. And uh, what is it? And I remember like whistling under my breath, going into church to do, you know, confession practice. And she slapped me in the mouth and went, if you whistle in church, it makes the Virgin Mary's lips bleed. Uh, believe me, that freaked you out when you're six. Okay, so that was fair enough. Now, I don't know what your mum was like, but back Catholic mothers in those days, you make your first com- confession age six. And it's not like these movies. You go in, you go, bless me, Father. And then you bless me, Father Fraves. And then you go, I've been telling lies. I've been disobedient. I've been fighting. I've been stealing. 
whatever. These are all I can remember, Father. And he goes, you know, say six our fathers, six Hail Marys, get off. And then you go, you know, you say them and then you go home. And, uh, but I did that. And because I felt, I didn't, you know, because of the Virgin Mary thing, and I felt so scared about, you know, committing any more sins. I thought, right, well, I'm going to spend two weeks not lying, not fighting, not being disobedient. Not telling, and no more stealing. Like I nicked a Milky Way, actually. I, well, I didn't nick it. I said that I'd put a threatening bit in the Milky Way machine and nothing would come out. You know what I mean? And then the guy trusted me. And, you know, he said, do you want the Milky Way, your threatening bit? And I went, well, give me the Milky Way then. Threatening bit would be like stealing, wouldn't it? And um, so basically, my mum then sent me back two weeks later. So I thought, well, I've not committed any sins. I'm only six. So I was waiting in confession and I felt so guilty. I thought, well, I'd better make one up. So I went in and went, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my second confession. These are my sins. I went, uh, oh, it's been two weeks since my last confession. Uh, these are my sins. I've been telling lies. So there I was, age six, telling lies <laughs> about telling lies <laughs> for forgiveness. The sheer futility of it all. Making up sins to be forgiven for. I mean, I, you know, then that was when you just thought, this this is a load of old bollocks, isn't it? Really? You know, and then, then going to St. Bede's was great when you were 11 because they tell you too much. You know what I mean? They go, well, the Red Sea could be the Reed Sea, uh, Virgin uh, for a woman, that could be Virgo from the Greek, Greek for young woman, so it doesn't necessarily mean she was a virgin. And then they ask you, you still going to church? You go, well, we say we are. Because you do that one, wouldn't you, where you like skip mass because you were made to go to mass every week, and then you know you'd be like, "Who said mass?" You'd be hanging around outside, you know, the closed we'll chip, the you know, whatever. Well, we never got asked that. We didn't go into those those massive details, you know, how much, you know, what are the vestments. I mean, one of the best confessions. Yeah, they did, they, they did when I was. Oh going. right, well, no, what color the vestments? Yeah. Well, how would they know? Because if they had been in mass earlier, it was the same color on the same. All oh, right. Well, no, we would just say, who said mass? Or was it Father Carter, yeah. Father McMahon, whatever? Well, you must have loads of priests then. We only had to. Oh, well, it was a big parish, St. Alphonsus, in Old Trafford, yeah. because, you know, it was a big Irish area. So uh, well, we had Canon O'Donnell, who was Matt Busby's uh, parish priest at the time of Munich, you know, the canon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a decent parish like that. No scandal either at St. Alphonsus uh, amongst any of our parish priests, except for Father Carter being a city fan. That was it. <laughs> How did he get away with that one? Talking of football fans venting their anger, I just wonder where you vent yours these days, Terry, as a, as a, a lapsed United fan, but I imagine a pretty oh. frustrated one. Well, to, to be fair, I'm more angry at the fans moaning and, you know, because they were warned about what, what would happen when the Glazers took over in 2005. Uh, but the worst one is what's, what's helped me calm down is I, I, I can't stick being around me lads anymore to watch United. They drive me mad. They're screaming at every, every time the ball goes out as a throw, for a throw-in or anything, you know, and then they're on the phone to me. If United lose a draw, I get, get like, you know, my youngest lad's doing maths at Sheffield Uni. The phone blows up. I might not have spoken to him for a week, but I'm not answering. I don't want to listen to him moan. You know, he's, he's, he's 20 now. Let him moan to his mates, not his dad about this. The only one, they're just screaming at them. Like, and they have the little favourites and they have the uh, certain United players that they can't stand. But I just go, well, do you know what? It's that the whole team have got a gel, you know, and some people can be off form, some can be on form. For some, the club's too big for them, even though you like them. You know, they've not maybe turned up in the way that they should. I mean, the problem that United have had for the last few years is we've got players who can do it some of the time, you know, rather than most of the time. And we need them to do it most of the time. 
Yeah, I dare say those kids of yours are probably spoilt from the uh, glory days. I mean, if they're 20. Well, well, yeah, but then again, you see, when you're 20 and we've not won the league since <laughs> since he was like 12, 13, yeah. then it's I, like... It's like the 70s know, and 80s all over again. Oh, I went through that. I mean, it got, to, it got to the stage where I couldn't even stand to look at old clips of United winning the European Cup and stuff like that because it made me depressed. Mm. It made me sad because I just thought, when, when, when is that ever going to come back? You know, you, you hoped it was that season under uh, Atkinson, you know. And then funnily enough, um, you know, obviously when we finished runners-up, you know, that the first proper season when Brian arrived, but then there was that awful season, you know, the 89-90 was it, and it was like where we just didn't seem to be able to, or was it 88-89 season, when, when nothing seemed to, we didn't seem to be able to play our way back into matches. It didn't seem to be, it all seemed a bit flat you know, that everyone wasn't quite good enough. And I remember us all moaning about Ferguson in the, in the Throstle's Nest pub. That was our local, you know, on Seymour Grove. And um, and funny enough, well, do, do you know Marie Riley? That, um, well, yes, so her, her cousin... Big, yeah, yeah, so... Well, 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 her uncles, her uncles, uh, Anthony and Jed Flanagan, you know, they, they were both in there. They were twins and they were mates of mine. And so we, we were all together in there, Um you know, a load of us, and we were all moaning, you know, about Fergie, about, let, you know, letting go good players like Whiteside and McGrath and, you know, the sort of football that we were playing at the time. And this old Irish bloke, Mr Moore, who works in the offices there, Bernadette Moore's uh, dad, you know, who ended up uh, a newsreader working on Sky and for Piccadilly Radio and all that. Mr Moore, he came up, he said, listen, lads, you're wrong about Alex Ferguson's going to be the, the best manager United have had since, you know, since, um, what is it, Sir Matt Busby? And uh, his thing was, he said, he said, he, all the other managers since Busby, none of them had even asked him his name. Whereas, like, Sir Alex went in there and, you know, got to know him and asked him about his family and all the rest of it. And so he felt, I think, mind you, his other one was in the days of Ron Atkinson, he said, we're never, go we're never going to win, win a, you know, uh, win, a, win a league title with Ron Atkinson. He said, you know, when, because he, he used to smell aftershave on him. And he said, I mean, how can players respect a man who walks around smelling like a tart? I tell you that Fergie didn't smell like a tart. Yeah, well, no, this is his thing. This is his thing about Big Ron. You know, they're never going to win under Big Ron because he smells like a tart. Yeah. But yeah, so so we all looked at him like he was mad, and there it was, and it came true. Yeah. What he said. To us. We, we always we always like to embarrass Jockey on this show when we've got a guest. And I was going to say when having grown up in the late 60s, 70s, watching United, pretty pretty mediocre time. Obviously, a couple of cup finals and what have you. And then Brian arrives in 1987. I think it. Sort of heralded a, a new era at the club, maybe not immediately, but but do you remember feeling that at the time in the well late eighties, early nineties? Not really, because I, I I thought Big Ron was very unlucky not to have won the league. Um, you know, we, we got a lot of injuries and we we're like ten points clear, eighty five, um, eighty six. Yeah. yeah, you know, and playing great football as well. I mean, blimey, Peter Barnes. It was like I don't know what what they were feeding him on, but he was amazing until he got injured, and then obviously the football was scintillating under Tommy Doherty. They never gave him a budget. They didn't give him any money to spend. And, uh, you know, we finished third in 75, 76 with the smallest squad, you know, not, not even a squad, you know, and the injuries that season, especially towards the running. Uh, so we finished third behind Liverpool and QPR and, and should have won the FA Cup. So we nearly did the double and we'd just come out of uh, Division 2. So that was great football too. You know, I mean, it's like, uh, so it wasn't, you know, the quality of football, you know, obviously with those, 
there was uh, years when we were finishing like eighth and stuff like that, but you still seen some see some cracking games. You know, I remember like seeing us beat Coventry four two, and we had like Ian Story Moore and George Best. You know, play. You know, and then Willie Morgan all on the on the same team. You know, and it was it just amazing, amazing to watch. And it was one of one of Martin Buchan's first games as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, when Chucky came, obviously, you know, to have have a goal scorer who could, you know, terrorize defenses and you know put it put the wind up by defenders because I mean, it did give you know uh, tough defenders a hard time. I mean, likewise, Mark Hughes. You know, I always think, you know, whenever I would, I, if I was going to do my all time Manchester United eleven. I always put Wayne Rooney in ahead of Cantona because I don't think Cantona looked the same player once Mark Hughes went. I think Mark Hughes created a lot of a lot of space for him. Yeah, good point. You know, allowed him to drop deep. You know, it gave him a target all the time. You know, to put a ball into, then do, then run on, and yeah, you know. So there was there was a lot of. Uh, I mean, I mean, it was still good to be a United fan. I mean, there's still things that that's what I kind of miss. I miss that feeling of, of any real drive from the midfield. I mean, it's like, you know, Pogba makes us a better side. Um, but you kind of look at some of them, you just wonder if it's too big a club for them, you know, including maybe Ranić. You know, although that might be a bit, bit cruel, but I just can't understand why United didn't buy a central defensive midfielder. It's just, it's just a shame. You know, you kind of think, I mean, I know all the teams pull the, you know, they, they try the best against United, no matter where we are. And I try and say that to my lads and they, they won't have it. You know, whereas like, you know, I, I sometimes think for other teams, whether it's against City, Chelsea, Arsenal, you know, there's been times over the years when, when we haven't won the league and I've looked at the team, our rivals, and think, well, nobody bothered giving them a game after Christmas. Yeah. You know, where, whereas they, they go all out for United because the, it means so much to their fans. You know, I was getting loads of grief online off uh, off Brentford fans before that game this season. You know, as if United had got it cancelled on purpose. I mean, it's great to beat them. I mean, teams like that, I do like to see relegated. <laughs> Go on, why uh, Brentford? Well, because they, they come up, they've got no chance of ever challenging or doing anything, and they just stink the place out, don't they? Fighting relegation from August. Whereas I'd rather a Sheffield Wednesday came yeah. up or a Sunderland or you know a, a bigger team, a Nottingham Forest, you know a Derby County. Someone who's got a tradition, and if they're doing well, they can pull a crowd and they can have money to spend, and they've got a bit of ambition more than just well, let's hang around like a bad smell. Yeah, I mean, you could I'm say no. I'm, I'm always glad to see them go down. <laughs> well, you could say Norwich. I'd put Norwich in that category as well, because well, yeah, I mean, I think it's three fun. three strikes and out. It should be. I preferred Ipswich, you know, back in the olden days. They were a good yeah. side, weren't they? Once upon a time, Ipswich Town. Right. I wonder if they ever recovered from United beating them nine nil. <laughs> I mean, once once upon a time, we, we'd struggle to beat them at Old Trafford, even when we we had a good decent side. But you remember the uh, six nil, six one, three penalties missed, nineteen eighty one. Remember when Gary Bailey saved three penalties? My God. I mean, Ipswich were, were one of our bogey teams. And they, were, and they were so unlucky not to have won the league at some point in the 70s or 80s. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Should have won it in 81, shouldn't they? But They should, should have won it in 75 when United yeah. were in Division 2. They were, they were easily the best side I saw at Main Road that season. They drew with City 1-0, but they, they played them off the park. Colin Bell cropped up with a, a wonder goal. You know, he, he put. He, I tell you what, I mean, he, he's dead now. But Colin Bell, there was a player because I, without him, I don't. I don't know if City would have even made the top top six in all those years. Mm. Never mind won the league because he'd just suddenly turn up and do something. 
Steam open a few of the letters we've had dropped through our letterbox, please, Matthew. Okay. The first one's for Terry, and it's from Chris Etchingham. And he says, who came up with the ideas for the people will do anything to get on TV section on the word? Uh, and which grossed him out the most? He says, personally, the man eating raw animal testicles was awful. Ooh, I think loads of them did. I, I hated the pubic, pubic hairs on a cracker. The worm sandwich, that was horrible. That was a bloke from Stoke-on-Trent because not only, but he actually chewed it, you know what I mean? And it was white bread as well, you know, thick white bread. Um, the maggot the maggot sandwich as well. Oh, God. Um, I, get, I get the feeling that wasn't your idea, that section. Of no, no, well, it, it was Paul Ross. We used to call him the king of porn. So Jonathan Ross's older brother, and uh, he'd seen it on a Canadian TV, TV show where they used to pay participants $250 but they wouldn't know what they were doing until they got there and that's that's what happened with the word I mean there was a girl from Hull and she'd gone with a boyfriend just to hold his hand not to do anything and she ended up like diving in in that bath full of like cows cows wee and horse manure you know with a snorkel on just because <laughs> at the time it took her you know they she had the urge so she did because she just said oh, who fancies doing this and she volunteered but at the time, it might not have been your cup of tea, but, I mean, at the time, you must have appreciated it, it was going to have a lasting impact. I mean, the fact that 30 well, years on, these people are still talking about well, it. Well, I mean, yeah, but it was a bit annoying because I wanted them to be talking about the great music they saw on it. And we did do the odd thing like that. You know, we'd, we'd maybe do two or, two, or, two or three little things during a series, but to do it every week becomes uh, a contrivance and a gimmick. And I hate contrivances and gimmicks. I just think they shorten your shelf life. And it did. That's what, if we had never done that, we would, we would probably have run for about another 10 or 11 years, another five, five or six years, at least the word. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those, cause it, there were certain people uh, within. So there's a lot of politics behind it because there's an allocated budget. And when a commission editor comes in, he wants to make a successful show, but he can't pull an already successful show. And our show was using up about a third or, or nearly a half of the budget for that department. And, um, you know, so whoever takes over, they can't bathe in the, re in the reflected glow of glory. They can't say, oh, look, the word's a big success. They go, well, yeah, well, you didn't, you didn't commission that. But, it, but, it, but I think it got a bit perverse and it was a bit of a stupid thing. It was definitely a glitch in the system to do that if you want to run a successful TV channel. You know, so what, what the commission editor with us did was he tried to create as many complaints to the board of governors about us as possible. So every week we did, we do the hopefuls and then a thing will come up after the word going, if you have seen anything on this show that you'd like to complain about, ring this number. <laughs> Who does that? Can you imagine doing that now? The phone well, would be ringing off the hook. Well, the weirdest <laughs> one was we had, we had this one. It was like, it was like the hopefuls where somebody put the feet in some flip flops with, with supposedly dog pooing. Right. So we had loads of complaints about that on the show that followed us. Was it uh, Rapido or uh, was it the Euro yeah, what's, what's the Europa one? Eurotrash. Yeah. Eurotrash. Yeah. It, it, there was a, an orgy, a coprophiliac orgy, where they were actually eating feces and they didn't get one complaint. Well, because we go, if you've seen anything on this show you'd like to complain about, do let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we've got one from Mark's best mate, Paul, 
um, who you've obviously know about, and he's sick of Sky and BT deliberately antagonising Everton fans by having overtly Liverpool biased voices co-commentated on their games, i.e. Carragher, McManaman, etc. And he wants to ask Terry if he would fancy doing a commentary on Liverpool games and which partisan mank voices would he choose to inflict upon Reds with him in the commentary box? Well, well, yeah, me, Sean Ryder, and uh, probably probably uh, one of my mates, actually, from Old Trafford, yeah, yeah Pete Monaghan. Because uh, we, we have that thing of Liverpool where we saw them cheat all the way through. You know what I mean? We saw them dive. You know, Kevin Keegan, who's a right diver, you know. And, uh, you know, he used to dive. He, he'd, get, he'd get tackled, dive over, roll around on the ground, get whoever tackled him booked. And this is in the, the, the kind of mid-70s. And then the minute they'd been booked, he'd be up like a spring lamb, you know, running around. And then when he came on and missed that open net in the 82 World Cup, it's as grudge-bearing as that. Also, you know, I mean, Liverpool didn't even play in red, did they? We invented red. And Carragher actually is an Evertonian, isn't he? It's weird oh, how they can... They can was as well. You know, they, can, they can turn like that massively. I mean, all the things that they actually say about Manchester, like Manchester, you know, Man- Mancunians are actually City fans. has never been true. You know, they're outnumbered three or four or one in Manchester. But in Liverpool, I suspect it's it's about 60% Everton. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, uh, well, they did, they did, did a big survey in... Um, Loughborough University in the early days of the Premier League to find out which football teams had the biggest number of season ticket holders that lived within a four-mile radius of the ground. And Man United had the highest proportion of season ticket holders who lived within that radius. Liverpool had the lowest. Because they're all Norway and Wales, aren't they? I dare say Everton were in that bracket as well, Mark. Wouldn't you say not? I mean, knowing knowing so many Blues in this city, I mean, they all claim to be... uh... Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's be honest. Who the fuck outside Liverpool is going to support Everton anyway? So, except me. <laughs> yeah, no, Ever, Ever, Everton were the big side, though, when I was growing up. I remember the 1971 FA Cup uh, final supporting Liverpool against Arsenal and my mum and, I, and even our Tony. Because Everton were the ones who were like the, the great side, really. I mean, I know Liverpool were good in this, but Everton seemed to be the glamour side. You know, the 69-70 side, that one, and all the England players that they had in that team. You know, mm. so... It's a weird one, isn't it? They've lost yeah. it. They've lost it, I suppose, Everton now. But yeah, I would. I would, I would do a Liverpool, a Liverpool game, yeah. you know, and just keep saying, you know, just keep mentioning the fact that Klopp's going to go off and manage uh, Germany after the Qatar World Cup. I would. I would absolutely double my Sky subscription if that would happen. Yeah, well, and, and and Pep will be off to manage Spain. You know, I, I love it though when City fans go about what a great job Pep's done, and you're going, hmm. So he took over a struggling team who just won the league. <laughs> and had like Raheem Sterling, uh, Sergio Aguero, Yaya Torre, David Silva, um, Vincent Company, etc. You know what I mean? Poor bloke. And well, then managed, managed to get them to finish fourth after spending a few hundred million on them. While you're on one, Terry, stay right there. Um, this one's for both of you. It's from Carl Clements. And he says, if Brexit was a football club, who would it be? Well, I mean, I was going to take the mickey and say some pub team, but actually it would be Hartlepool United, wouldn't it? Well, didn't Hartlepool vote Tory? You know, <laughs> because, because the Tories have been in power for 11 years and the Hartlepoolians said, well, we, want, well, we wanted a change. Right, Tories in power, 11 years. You voted Tory for a change. Brexit, get Brexit done. You know, that. that did you Did you ever see any of the Vox Pops with the, with the people of Hartlepool? 
denser than a neutron star. They really were. Do you know they hung a monkey, didn't they, in the Napoleonic Wars? Because yes. he thought he was a French spy. And you used to think, they must have made that up. And then when I saw them all voting Tory, I thought, blimey. And then voting Brexit. Well, what have Labour ever done for us? And you go, well, mate, look at look at the hundreds of millions of investment that went into the North East. 68% of you are working in the public, in the public sector and getting paid decent wages. Now you're waiting to be levelled up. Yeah, Hartlepool. That's Hartlepool off the tour list for your next uh, gig. Oh, no, no, I'd love to go there. I yeah, would well. love to go there to laugh in their faces. You know, <laughs> the inbreds. Brian, you're not getting away with this. You've got, to, you've got to give us an answer. If Brexit was a football club, who would it be? Apparently, they're exactly the same. They decided that uh, they wanted a change as well and voted uh, <laughs> for the same reasons. Not quite the same... Uh, Exactly the same things that Terry says, but Burnley, yeah. And they're not, they're not just the only ones because it's all small towns round places like Manchester, Burnley, Blackburn, Macclesfield, who all voted for it thinking it was going to make it all better. And there's, there's, you still meet people now who argue that it is better. It's like they just repeat the the latest lie they've been told, and you're going, well, you know, but but they didn't do any reading the research. It's just a feeling. It's like it's like a religious cult, and uh, you know, they're similar to the anti-vaxxers in a way. The only thing is, is with the anti-vaxxers, it's like you know, choices have consequences. Unfortunately, you know, with the anti-vaxxers, they're going to be the ones suffering most of the consequences of their stupidity. But for, for like Brexiters, we've all got to suffer for them and our kids have as well. And they still, I'm still waiting to hear one tangible benefit of Brexit all these years later. And it infuriates me because it just, you know, the, 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 the only freedom of movement they like is a freedom of movement of the goalposts. Just say, Hang on a minute, you said we were going to be better off. You know, oh, well, give it five years and we've already given it five years. I mean, you know, they, they couldn't be any thicker if you, you know, you bump into them. Actually, thick is unfair. Ignorant and pig ignorant. They've just never bothered to read up or find out about it. The last two questions about the word. Um, uh, Gavin Harvey says, who was your favourite band or artist ever to appear on the word? <sighs> I mean, that's hard. Um, we have so many good ones on. Um, Performance-wise, I thought the Lars were brilliant when they came on. Obviously, Nirvana, they were fantastic, you know, at playing live when they came on. But, I mean, most, most of the bands did a great job. I remember Oasis because I was under a lot of pressure for them to be good because they were, they were unknown at the time. And I'd spent eight weeks, you know, uh, trying to get them on. And the last two times I'd seen them was a terrible gig at the boardwalk. And then I went to the, what was the Hop and Grape, which is now the Academy 3, I think, you know, upstairs at the top of the university. And Liam was so shy, he sang the whole set with his back to the stage. But I'd heard that they'd been playing great. They'd been supporting the Glasgow <laughs> band Whiteout. So the, the reports that was getting back, because, you know, uh, my ex-missus, you know, she worked them. And then uh, uh, Noel's girlfriend that he lived with at the time, Louise Jones, worked, worked for my ex-missus in the office. So they'd given me good reports. And I was like that when I saw them in, in the rehearsal. I went, they are really good. They sound great. And, uh, yeah, so I suppose Oasis, Nirvana. I mean, there were just loads of great, great performances on the show. For the last one, Brian, I'm just going to ask you, you, you said earlier on about how you used to watch it as a player standing on a Friday night. Were you, were you the sort of minority of 
of footballers watching a show like that in that, that period of time? I know you're a bit of an outsider anyway, but... The only people who would have watched that show was anybody who was rooming with me on away games and they would be saying exactly the same thing as what are you watching this shit for? <laughs> this is all you It's just typically you, you know, you're the, whatever, all the kind of things they thought about me. You're too, you're too clever, you're too left-wing. You're too I, I, I don't think the word was that clever, really. <laughs> no, no, but in the sense of watching stuff and in the sense of what they're saying, oh, it's like, oh, this, all this stuff is like, nah, too, far too um, uh, radical for them, you know? So and then and, and it was like and part of the thing is that then it would be uh, I'm kind of keeping them awake because they want to go to sleep. Depending, well, most of them wanted to go to sleep by then, and um, you know, you know, I've been, those like, Bluetooth headphones would have been an absolute dream for me. Then <laughs> I could uh, just listen to and watch what I was doing, you know, watch the programs I wanted to watch. That only happened to be later on. When uh, Fergie thought, for whatever reason, I should all the foreign players, Kanchelskis, Poborski, and um, um, Van der Hal, which suited me a treat because I just watched, because they didn't, they couldn't really understand so much. So I just watched any television I wanted and I just and put it up as loud as I wanted because they had no idea about whether this, was a, <laughs> this is what happened or not happened in England, you know. <laughs> put it up as loud as I can and just watch all that sort of stuff. So. So in that period of time, yeah, Kanchelskis would have been the one who would have been there. Watching the word. And watching it and thinking, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on here. You know? What an education for a young... <laughs> well, more Freddie Windsor, uh, you know, uh, relating, of course, to the uh, royal family. Would, would, uh, would Prince Andrew be his uncle? <laughs> or whatever. He was a big United fan, and uh, he had his Kanchelskis number 14 um, uh, shirt stolen from the laundry at Eaton or Harrow, whichever posh one he was at. It was stolen from the laundry there. Damn bounders. Uh, right, we can't have a mailbag without Cumbrian Dave, and he closes the show with this one for Terry, and he says, was Oliver Reed your most challenging drunk interviewee? Um, no, because he wasn't that drunk. Um, and I, actually, I, I, I argued against that. He knew it was, it was a setup, so he was just acting drunk, really. You know, uh, I'm trying to think who was, who was an actual drunk. Uh, who was off her face as a Karyotis, you know, the actress? who used to go out with uh, Mickey Rourke, she was off her face, so she was quite mm-hmm. challenging. Because um, we, we actually had... But, I mean, she just kept... The worst one was when she came on and she was laughing at... Dale Winton was on the same show, and, and his campness just made her laugh all the way through. And then there was one <laughs> bit where I, I said to her, I said, look, I said, you can't laugh at Dale, he's, he's a British institution. I said, it's like laughing at the Queen. She just went off. She never recovered mm. again. <laughs> Did you do that on purpose? Did you put guests on knowing that they would get on and not get on, or was it just random? No, no. I, I mean, that was that was something that was taken from my radio shows because I used to like to juxtaposition, so keep people on, you know, if we're doing stuff or you know what I mean, and chatting about things. So you know, if I mean, I, I remember once having like, um, yeah, you just keep them on together, you know, having like the Inspiral carpets on, and then you've got the wall tones on, and then you just like mix, mix and match, or you know, having um, they might be giants on and the Pixies on the same show, you know, or whatever, you know. So I used to do that on the radio a lot. I, I used to have a sidekick called John Ronson who went on to write books, I believe. I don't know whatever happened to him, but we used to do a similar thing, you know, so we get 
odd people on and shove them on because it's the juxtaposition that often makes it interesting. I mean, we have Jimmy Hill on with J- mm-hmm. Mary J. Blige. By the way, Jimmy Hill's a big fan of Brian McClare's. Uh, Mary J. Blige and members of Duran Duran. Now, that would be probably the worst World Cup panel ever, wouldn't it? <laughs> All the best. <laughs> yes. Why was Jimmy Hill a, ch- a chockey fan? Well, because it was one of those things where, where I was moaning, funny enough, about, about Brian saying, well, you know, because, he, you know, when you looked at people like Kanchelskis being on the bench and stuff, and he'd be starting, I'm going, you know, I wanted to see Kanchelski taking loads of people on. I said, but, but so why is he persistent with, uh, with McClare? You know, because I like McClare better as a striker, you know, not in this midfield role and everything. And uh, he said, oh, no, no, he's very good. He said he gives and goes, does this, blah, 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 his movement and all the rest of it. You know what I mean? So Jimmy was like, hey, you must have known what he was talking about, Brian. You know, <laughs> the late Jimmy Hill. But he was a good laugh, actually, Jimmy. Yeah. Him and Mary J. Blige. He likes the ladies. Trying <laughs> like, to meet you, you know, but there you go. Well, we had to tell Mary J. Blige that uh, that the bloke that she was supposed to be engaged to out of that uh, band, Jodeci. Uh, was it Jodeci they were called? You know, like a, mm. a bit bit like boys to men, but maybe a bit more hin hoppy than that. Uh, I, uh, I denied being engaged to her, you know what I mean, <laughs> on live TV in the UK, and she'd never seen it. So that was kind of us, wasn't it? What a scoop. Mm. Awful. Horrible, the things you have to do on that <laughs> show sometimes. I mean, seriously. I, I still wonder, you know, that maybe I shouldn't have gone along with it, because you go, you'd be wincing, you know, like thinking, well, I've got to do it because it's my job. I've got to say this. And then now I just say, you 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 go you go and ask Whitney Houston if she's a lesbian. I actually got away with that one. I actually got away with not asking it because because uh, during during one of the advertising breaks, um, one of these lads, you know, when we have Whitney Houston live on the show, said, "Whitney, can I have your phone number?" And she went, "Oh no, I don't think so." And he said, "It's all right, love. I've heard you're a lesbian." Right, so that meant I didn't have to ask her. <laughs> and I was like, "Phew." Well, I think judging from our mailbag, there's a lot of people that are glad that show was what it was and uh, they appreciate it all these years on. So uh, over to you to Mark, Mark to wrap up. Yeah, indeed. We've come to the end of this episode. Um, Terry, thanks so much for, for joining us. Um, it's been brilliant having you on. Hey, cheers for that. No, it's been really good fun. Fantastic. Have you got anything coming up that our listeners should be looking out for? Yeah, well, I've got quite a few things. So I'll be, I'm doing a thing for uh, Radio 4, um, but I'll be recording it early March, um, the Great Live series. So I've, I'm doing about Tony Wilson because he did define my, you know, my whole career, really, uh, the late Tony Wilson. And then uh, I've got my stand-up show, The Word Is, Terry Christian, The Naughty 90s and Me. You know, so it is good. We'll, we'll be showing little clips of The Word too, but it's it's like a kind of stand-up show. It'll be Funny, plus a Q&A, which is like no holds barred sort of thing. So, yeah, we'll get into it. I'll get busy with that one. Great. Well, we'll definitely be looking out for that one. And I'm sure, Matthew, you've uh, you've been to one of Terry's shows before. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll keep an eye out. And people can follow you on Twitter at Terry Christian to look out for more details, right? Yeah, brilliant. And, uh, oh, yeah, maybe maybe Paul McCartney will come to me next one. Well, yeah. <laughs> or, or Andre Kanchelskis. <laughs> I, I mean, I know, I mean, I knew Mike McCartney, you know, I spoke to him and all that kind of stuff, but, but the fact that he brought his wife to see me on a birthday. <laughs> I, I remember it well. I remember a mate, my mate that I was with 
nudging me and saying, that's Paul McCartney's brother over there. I think you doused him in holy water at one point as you well, came no, on. The thing is, he was, he was going to do his own one-man show, so he wanted to see how bad mine was first. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot be worse than that. <laughs> right, uh, Chucky, Matthew, uh, pleasure as always, lads. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, and thanks, Terry. Thanks, been thank great. You, as usual, just a shout for our Twitter, which is at Brian McClare Pod, if you care to follow us. And a reminder to seek us out wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button, please. Oh, and by the way, we now have uh, an Instagram account. So check us out there too, which is also at Brian McClare Pod. Thanks for listening and take care till next time. Life with Brian. Life with Brian. Talking films or music. Life with Brian. Talking TV. Podcast Network.